Well, good morning, everyone from here in London, and I'm delighted to welcome my friend, uh, Dr. Robert Haircock, who's dialing in from uh, way up in the in the wilds near Martlesham, I think. Oxford. Uh, Oxford, oh, even further. <laughs> uh, and we're here today to talk about text to intelligence, the future of knowledge graphs. Now, knowledge graphs have been around for a very long time, uh, at least conceptually. But again, the rise of computing power, the rise of uh, the ability to display and visualize them, and of course, the rise of data has meant that they are as important as never before. And uh, it's going to be fun, I think, to explore this today with Robert. Now, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it is my privilege to be able to introduce so many of these FS Club webinars. And I can only do so thanks to the uh, tolerance, if I can call it that, uh, it certainly is a tolerant and friendly group of sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Um, Robert's uh, talk today is going to very much feature on how these knowledge graphs, which are a technology, are intimately related to economics and finance and offer us, in many ways, great potential. Now, uh, the format today is, as ever, uh, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible uh, so you can hear from our expert. Um, we've uh, kept approximately 20 minutes uh, for questions and answers at the end. Uh, a few points of housekeeping. Firstly, yes, this is being recorded and the recording will be posted in approximately uh, 48 working hours. Uh, you'll see it up uh, on the site. Uh, the copy of the slides is in fact already in the webinar area where you registered. Uh, I'm not going to be uh, rude by not introducing Robert, but you have read his biography a couple of times in registering for this event and we'll hope to get straight into it. So the only really important piece of housekeeping is uh, please do type your questions, comments, or observations into the GoToWebinar chat facility so I can feed them in to the discussion with Robert. There's no point in emailing me or texting me or signaling me or WhatsApping me or any of the various methods of uh, sending your knowledge graph to me. Uh, I'm here with you at the moment, so uh, do use the Go to questionnaire facility. Uh, Robert will receive a copy of all of the comments, questions, and observations with your email attached. So if you want to get directly in touch with him, just leave a comment or question or observation, and he will have that. And with therefore, with no more ado, uh, Robert, the is very much yours. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. Um, so as Michael's saying, I'm a chief researcher in BT in our research facility. Um, background is AI and cybersecurity and machine learning. So do you want to get to the first poll question, Michael? That sounds great. Uh, we've got a poll question I'm just about to launch here now. Uh, let's see if the audience is awake there. What is the most promising application for knowledge graphs? Do you see it as enterprise search, graph databases, AI enhancement, data governance, or my favorite, salmon fishing? Yeah, probably. Michael likes fishing. I thought I'd throw that one in there. Yeah. It's always about the price of fish. And just just over half the audience have voted. I'll give it a few more seconds there. They're treating it earnestly, though, which I think is very good, Robert. Only only 4% were unable to resist your bait. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just close that and <laughs> share the results with you. Okay. And, oh, that's and, nice. I like that. Fairly good spread, although AI enhancement comes out top. Well, that's interesting. I would expect most people to go for enterprise search because typically online that's what you'd see as a common application area for knowledge graphs. Uh, but my personal favor would definitely be AI enhancement. Um, and that's certainly what I think the main uh, value is. So that's great, a great start. 
Good. Right, so let's kick off. Um, text to knowledge. So why am I calling it this? So if we look at the history of knowledge graphs, um, it's not a new topic. It goes back a long way. And certainly from the 1960s, people were beginning to think in terms of formal structures for how you structure a semantic network and relate into a computer uh, framework. And then we have sort of in the early 2000s, people like Tim Berners-Lee <coughs> coming up with the idea of a semantic web, where you're trying to mix this knowledge graph concept with the whole web and hyperlink area. Um, and then from the, the basic diagram, you can see effectively we're talking about a graph where you have nodes and edges. The nodes are entities of some kind, which could be anything, and the edges are relationships between them. Um, and then you can mix and match this as you go along. I'll get on to uh, how these things are evolving and where we are and what the challenges are going forward. Next slide, Michael. So if you look online, there's a wide range of descriptions of knowledge graphs. Interestingly, in the past decade or so, the, the term has mutated and has begun to evolve and mean something different. So it's traditionally, it was very much about ontologies and RDF and uh, tightly structured data sets. Now it's evolving into something quite different, a much more fluid conceptualization of what a knowledge graph is. And this was kind of popularized by Google back in 2012 with their sort of common use of the idea of a knowledge graph. And there's a blog reference there for you to go follow up afterwards. Next slide, Michael. Uh, could you just uh, explain RDF to the audience, please? Oh, sorry, resource description framework. So that's a, a structure where we're representing knowledge as a, a knowledge triple, a subject, object, predicate, uh, and data set. Thanks. So if we look at the old school method of knowledge graphs, this is about a knowledge representation where um, each piece of knowledge is an entity, which is part of the node in the graph, and the connections are some kind of relationship or a semantic link between them. Uh, there are linguistic definitions of how you'd structure such a uh, knowledge graph concept. Um, and this whole knowledge graph organizing data according to an ontology is the underlying, very much in the sort of 80s and 90s timeframe was the way people were approaching this. Um, and to, historically, the knowledge graph, would, knowledge graph would be constructed by an expert. So some domain expert would pull together various structured and structured data sources and try to assemble the graph by hand, in effect, <coughs> with minimal computing. Input. And that was a problem. That's one of the challenges. It was a very tedious, slow process. Next slide, Michael. So a short definition would be a knowledge graph consists of a set of interconnected typed entities and their attributes. This is a nice modern definition. This is very sort of flexible definition I quite like. There's a very good paper by Gomez Perez, a recent paper on the nature of knowledge graphs. If you're academically minded, you want to go dig into the topic, that's a, a great starting point. And there's also a very useful blog point, a blog reference I found, of the difference between ontologies and knowledge graphs and this sort of evolution of the concept over time and how it's got to where it is today, which is where hopefully we'll get to. Um, as Michael said, all the references have been listed at the end and also they'll be available online on the SEDGEM uh, website. Next slide, Michael. Right, so the next question hopefully people are asking is why? Why should I be interested? What's the value in this area? Um, there is definitely immense value. Um, and so many online services, so many machine uh, learning driven services now use knowledge graph constructs underneath them. Uh, key benefit, the knowledge graph can help you find new information or new links between information that wasn't explicitly de defined. This idea of mixing it with ontologies to uh, expand the knowledge graph is very important. And the third point there is it, for many people, it maps to the way humans reason over knowledge. It seems to be a nice way of linking human and AI capability. 
And I think that's why it's becoming very popular. And then the final point, um, kind of a good and a bad thing, it's inherently visual, so it makes it very easy to communicate and very easy to play with and build visual knowledge graphs. And I was having conversations with Michael, this can be a problem. You can end up with a spaghetti mess uh, of visual output, which doesn't tell you anything. It, it just looks pretty. And I know as, as a researcher in, in my domain, people get obsessed about, you know, tweaking that visualization without actually extracting any valuable information from it. So that's kind of a plus and con there. Next slide, Michael. Okay, it's poll time. Here we go. Okay, uh, so our sec second poll, which I'm just launching now, is uh, in the audience's opinion, which industries will benefit most from knowledge graphs? Finance, insurance, information and computing technology, health or pharmaceuticals, or space tourism? A uh, quarter of the audience have voted, half of the audience have voted. As ever, the FS Club is fast on the buzzers here. You're very fast, people. <laughs> Very opinionated. Okay, I'm just about to close the poll and uh, share those results as well. And here we go. And uh, okay. not not heavy on insurance, but uh, fairly well spread across the others. And again, resisting your uh, pie in the sky suggestion of space tourism. Any comments on this, Robert? Yeah, it's interesting to see a precise time between ICT and health pharma. So that's interesting. Um, uh, and as for this audience, I would expect the finance insurance piece to be probably larger, but uh, we have a very um, engineering-focused group. Well, it could be, you know, a combination of finance and insurance, depending, I guess. So, yeah. Right. Back to you. Sure. Moving on to the next example. So I'm trying to um, get, put some meat on the bone. Uh, there's a really useful reference place online for the Panama League papers. So people have taken this open data set now and started to explore it using knowledge graph concepts and capabilities so they've the links in the references so from that website you can load this data set in any browser with minimal knowledge start to explore it and look at this as a knowledge graph so they've already done the structuring they've already done the entity extraction so you've got countries actors individuals uh, companies and you start to see the relationships and explore that knowledge graph it's, a, it's very it's one of the more useful online exploration tool I've seen where you can actually start to infer meaning from a real data set and a significant size data set as well. Um, and this, but this is quite old school. So the graph that you're exploring there <clears throat> is very much a traditional ontology-driven knowledge graph approach to the problem or the way of exploring the data. If you go to the next slide, Michael. Now, this is an example of how probably not to do visualization. So you end up with spaghetti. Having said that, this is where I pulled in that data set, extracted the state entities, and then looked at the links between them. And in this case, the size of the nodes is a function of the degree of connectivity of those states within this data set. So as, you, as you'd expect, countries like Panama, Bahama, Bahamas, uh, Virgin Islands are quite large nodes, whereas Sweden and Finland are much smaller nodes in this data set, because they're just less represented. There are many ways you could have exp explored that data set. The point here is you can start to use automated tools, machine learning tools to do this filtering, do the visualization, accelerate the process. And this is what's getting people excited at the moment and where we'll come on to in a, in a second. Next slide, Michael. Okay, oh, uh, uh, I'm just launching the third and final poll. 
So again, uh, what do people believe are likely to be the main challenges in deploying knowledge graphs? A, data cleaning and preparation. B, a shortage of skilled people. C, a lack of enterprise awareness of the potential. D, automating creation and maintenance. Or E, Brexit. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, I, I'm gathering. It's also a good test of the audience uh, being alert, at least by <laughs> 11 o'clock in the morning in London time. Anyhow, I'm just about to close the poll with well over three quarters having voted, oh, 80% having voted. Great. And I'll share those results as well. Um, okay. Data yeah, operation and lack of enterprise awareness. And uh, you may recall uh, in our <laughs> in our chat earlier, I thought those were the two that would, would uh, be highest on my list as well, Robert. Yeah, definitely. Uh, th this is actually an important point, the data cleaning point. So commercially, and when you're dealing with organizations, everybody wants the sexy visualization. Everybody wants the knowledge graph output, but nobody wants to pay for the data cleaning and engineering that needs to happen to make that possible. So how you factor this into contracts and how to factor into commercial services is a real issue because people see that cleaning preparation as somebody else's problem, even either within an organization or between organizations. That's always uh, it's their problem. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's an ongoing issue in the whole data analytics and knowledge graph space. <clears throat> right, coming up to hopefully better news, which is where we are now with knowledge graphs. If you look at the um, sort of explosion of AI in the past decade, <clears throat> since the beginning of deep learning, sort of 2010 period, um, one of the areas most impact has been natural language processing, NLP. So if we recognize building knowledge graph is hard, how can we automate it? And the answer has been we can now use natural language processing to digest large volume of structured text <clears throat> and mine it to build your structured knowledge graph. Um, still challenging, still got all your data processing to do, but at least now you can mine through you know, terabytes of data and begin to build a meaningful knowledge graph for a particular enterprise, particular application, whatever it is that you're interested in. And also because you're mining this, you're avoiding the human error that may creep in and you're also able to find new inferences, new links that actually might tell you something useful. <clears throat> Next slide, Michael. Um, one of the core techniques in terms of the language processing is things like vector embedding. This is an entire separate topic. Um, I point you to the references, but it's basically the idea that you can use neural networks to mine across text data, like large volumes of corpus information you can usually online data sets, and start to build relationships between words at a semantic level that that extracted from that raw data. <clears throat> and you can use this to start to build your knowledge graph. But I would recommend you go have a separate deep dive on that, or we can do another talk in the future on the topic. But it's one of the basis techniques for how you would do this automation. This is the pointer. Next slide, Michael. Um, trying to simplify it down a bit. So if you okay, if you're saying, okay, what, how would we use these techniques? In this case, you're seeing a, another simplified graph, knowledge graph diagram, where this is kind of a more of a semantic graph where the nodes are color coded by topics, and this is a small news corpus of a you know, few megabytes of news data, text data, and it's being pushed through a set of NLP tools. It's effectively built <coughs> the clusters of topics where it's saying, okay, these sentences, these points in the date, text data, news data related, so I'll cluster them together. And you're starting to build a, an inf it's difficult now to know what we call it. It's, it's both a knowledge graph and a semantic graph and something in between. Um, but it now at least begins, as you can start to see links between clusters of information that you may not have spotted before. Um, 
I'm sure what I mean if it goes to the next line, Michael. Sort of curious why Hibernian is in there. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> trying to <clears throat> trying to get away from the massive data and trying to simplify it right down. This is a ridiculously trivial example. So this is a handful of terms, which is a list of words listing animals, plants, uh, a few of the uh, isolated concepts, and putting it through the same kind of NLP tools to build a semantic graph again. In the bottom left corner, the blue nodes now represent colors, colors of the rainbow. So the tool has automatically discovered these things are connected using this vast corpus of data I can access now. And then moving up that blue set into the green set, it becomes about talking about things like trees, grass, wood, forests. Then the top green node is a forest, and that's linked to one of the yellow nodes in the middle, which is a deer. So it's understood that forests and deers are connected. Human beings link those. And the red nodes in the center are flying things, things with wings. Um, and then there's another block in there that's amphibious things. And then if we go to the uh, next slide, Michael. I was just trying to figure out the connection between octopuses and trees. So uh... <laughs> you follow the graph. <laughs> right. So th this is this one's a nice uh, basic example you pull out from that this, this kind of data. So the tool automatically does semantic interesting. So it links like sheep, goat, camels. Okay, these are you know, agricultural animals that human beings farm. What's connected? Well, the color green connects to bamboo, connects to wood, that's connected to trees, that's connected to grass, both are connected to forests, which links to the deer and to wolves. Into what I find interesting here is sometimes this is where bias can kick in. The machine, so the system hasn't learned that bamboo is actually a kind of grass. What it's learned is that human beings use bamboo as if it's wood as a building material. So it's inferred something that's correct, but not ontologically necessarily perfect. So it's, an, it's a nice example of the kinds of very subtle biases that creep into using this kind of large NLP tools to extract knowledge from. Um, if you go to the next example, it gets even more interesting. So just for fun, into that data, I threw the term alien. So again, if in the graph, you'll see humans are connected to pigs, cows, farming things. This is very, it's just looking for the words in that data. How are they connected, right? And then the word alien that's thrown there as a, as a Red herring, in my fishing examples. Uh, and correctly, it's linked humans to aliens, good. And then from that data set, what are the things in that, that data set that are like an alien? And you pulled out spider and wolf. This really threw me when I did this. So, from the, the a large corpus of data, billions and billions of words in, in the NLP uh, system that it extracted this from, it's inferred that the way humans perceive an alien is often like a, you know, a hostile creature or a, a creature that we perceive as being alien in our own mental domain. So the tool has learned something interesting that you may have automatically associated it with. Obviously, if you used a larger initial input data set, it would have learned more nuanced, subtle links between alien and planets or alien and space. But given the microscopic target input, this is really interesting. Yeah. Next slide, Michael. A very topical one, and going back to why it applies to pharmaceutical and health business, uh, is earlier this year and past, really the past couple of years, DeepMind, the London AI company, have been doing quite a lot of work on um, something called graph neural networks, which is a way of mixing knowledge graphs with neural networks and deep learning neural networks, combining them to apply it to problems that are naturally graph-oriented in topological nature. And the ideal one for that is protein folding. So you can use these graphical networks to discovery over 
protein databases um, help solve the protein folding problem um, by reasoning about the spatial graph of the folded protein, which is is an, an amazing example of how these different technologies have come together in the past decade to solve really hard problems, really meaningful problems that were that were not amenable if you just applied a neural network or you just applied a single machine learning technique. This is an amalgamation of multiple techniques with this kind of idea of a knowledge graph to solve one of the hardest scientific problems we've faced. And these kind of methods are also being applied now to a wide range of other um, problems. My favorite being things like uh, links between published papers. So with COVID, we've had a vast open source data set of COVID-related research papers. And people are putting that through these kind of techniques to look at the links between the topics in the papers to actually do data mining and discover new you know, possible pharmaceutical related health related um, solutions to that kind of problem okay i think we're approaching the end if we go to the next one Michael. conscious of time um what the good news the knowledge graph field is advancing very rapidly um spe and specifically by the sort of whole deep learning capabilities of the past decade and the past really four three four years an explosion of nat better natural language processing capability <clears throat> using techniques like uh, Transformers, neural network method, vector embedding techniques, uh, all kinds of advances in that domain, which are just making it trivially easy actually to do this kind of automated graph extraction from raw, data, raw text data. In terms of value, it's being used in everything from recommendation systems, Google Graph, enterprise knowledge graphs, data exploration, an endless list. Again, in the references, you can find many, many examples of how it's being applied. Um, Remaining issues, it can be hard to implement. Uh, you need to be extremely careful with the data engineering, like the AGID example, you can, or the bamboo wood example, you can very easily bake in the bias into your knowledge graph without even realizing it. The machine has just learned an existing set of biases that human beings have and incorporated it. And it's even, and that's a much more subtle problem than even say the gender race bias that you can get into AI data sets, because it's completely unintentional and very difficult to even spot in, the, in advance. Um, so you need knowledge engineers that can bring deep domain ontology modeling expertise. And luckily, it's now an open area for research innovation. So we're doing some research in this space. Um, contact point, there's some contact point. Do get in touch if this it resonates with you. And on that point, I think we're hitting 20 minutes. Michael, into questions. Well, that's absolutely fantastic, Robert. Uh, a really uh, good uh, tour de force uh, and allows us ample time for comments, questions, and observations, of which I have quite a few here. Oh, um, you know Sorry. <laughs> yeah. just, just, if, uh, just, just to get things going, um, Chris David just would help if you would su summarize it. He, he says, so knowledge graphs are a tool to bring structure, labels, metadata, et cetera, to a mass of unstructured data. Is that roughly right? Yes. That's a great, great, great uh, summary, basically. Because the problem is, if you only live in a world with structured data of Excel sheets and that's your only data type, you don't need this. But if you're trying to make sense of the messy, noisy real world with raw, completely unconnected data, then this is one way of trying to transform that into a structured format. <clears throat> and then from that structured format, you can then feed it into other AI systems, applications, and services. Um, Alan Punter says that presumably a key application is counterterrorism analysis of intelligence. We have some very sharp people on the call. Yes. Um, great. Um, 
Bob McDowell is uh, kind of curious as well. Um, he's he's uh, questioning how likely are knowledge graphs to be used for propaganda purposes. Hmm. Interesting one. Um, yeah, like any technology, it's dual use, so um, you can use it to help build um, you know, better propaganda. I mean, the, the big fear was over the tool GPT. So GPT, something called GPT-3, which is a deep NLP tool that was released a couple of years ago and evolved through several iterations from GP1, 2, 3. So if you Google GPT-3, um, and the fear there was that tool can take a fragment of a sentence, a fragment of information, and build an entire story out of it that's completely fake. And then you can post that out there into the web. And people will read it and believe it was written by a human being. It wasn't. It was created by a machine entirely. And it, the quality of it is, if you weren't told, you would believe it was written by a human. Um, and so those techniques overlapping with things like knowledge graphs driving into that kind of tool to make it improve it or work with it, then, yeah, you can easily create better propaganda or fake news. Yeah, it's a, a couple of comments like that. In fact, my colleague Ian Harris has uh, made a comment here about <clears throat> the difficulties of communicating understanding through the knowledge graphs. But do, do you have any comments on misuse uh, on fake news and mendacious information uh, and the risk of misuse? And I must say, I'm aware of uh, projects uh, underway in, in which I, I happen to personally be involved where we're looking at, for example, anti-anti-vax propaganda deconstruction. Um, so yeah, it's a, I think the audience has, has really grasped that there. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, in that area, we are doing research, so get in touch if that's something that floats your boat in of interest. Drop me a line. Good. Drop, so please do drop Robert a line or just drop a comment in here and I'll make sure that it gets to him. Um, now, interesting here, I've got to, two questions here, um, related to the technology that you're using. So, uh, Pavel Mostak is, you know, could you suggest any tools to start dealing with knowledge graphs? And I think you've put a couple here and they're also on the, on the webinar site, uh, where Peter has posted them. Uh, and Andre Harris, but, you know, how, how about the knowledge graphs you have created? What AI tools and frameworks did you use to do this set that you did for the presentation? Sure. So if you want a basic start point with, well, first you need to learn about Python. Um, Spacey Python tool for NLP is very good, very lightweight. But if you want to go further, do something like BERT and then the derivatives of the BERT tool, <coughs> um, which are specialized for different things. So you can get a BERT version that's specialized to pharmaceutical or a BERT version specialized to you know, news ingest and uh, a site called Hugging Face. Serious, it's called Hugging Face. It has a lot of free transformer models and NLP models on it that you can get and quick just out of the box, use and go and do this kind of stuff. And then the Visualization is just D JavaScript D3 libraries. Sorry, Mike, we're getting quite a bit deep there, but. No, it's, it's good. The audience is very interested in this, Robert. Uh, in fact, um, push on a little bit here. Um, this is from Di Dionysus Demetrius, who's up at Hull University. Uh, Robert, you did touch on this early on. Uh, many of these visualizations look pretty, but what meaning can you extract from them is debatable. At some point, you hit visual complexity as well. Uh, and I'm wondering. Uh, what dynamic interaction techniques for exploring these graphs exist for the user and yeah. how would frontier advancing <clears throat> and do you have any comments in terms of user computer interaction uh, on the visualization itself studies yeah. being out of that area um we published some papers in the domain so i mean there are various techniques like compression of nodes so you have an automated way of compressing large numbers of nodes into a single node with a as a meta, meta node um so you can use compression methods like that <clears throat> Um, 
you can use embedding methods over the grass over things, a tool like node to vec is a way of um, predicting information out of the graph, but getting getting rid of the need to do the visualization in effect. Um, so the, the question is always, what do you need to visualize and why are you trying to visualize it? And it can really be a, a, a tar pit, the visualization aspect, that you, you, you end up with all your stuff just playing with pretty pictures, not actually arriving to, to an objective. Um, to a mission objective, so yeah, that that has to be a very carefully ma managed process. Mm. Uh, just just a quick second bite at the cherry. Um, David Gravel is just curious: what JavaScript libraries should we look at to get going? Um, D three is your main graph tool. Well, there are several others: uh, VizJS, um, Sigma library, um, and then if you just want to do visualization, yeah. So in Python, Network X is the main Python library for it. Mm -hmm. I must say, uh, we at Zen use D3 uh, when we're doing uh, knowledge graph work, um, so hopefully that helps. Um, now, got uh, a few um, area here. Just could you give just a, a slight over? This is from Andre Herre again. Uh, a slight overview of the process of text to graph. You know, how did you choose the nodes, um, and was there any human intervention there in inferring the connections between the nodes? I mean, so in the toy examples I gave, no. So the whole point was I randomly picked a list of terms that we have, we can be clustered, but have some possible, some possible links between them, and then threw that into the, the NLP system, the spacey NLP tool, and then ran various customized um, graph connectivity algorithms that, that we we built, and then look at what the output looked like, and then it was interesting to see. So using the corpus of data that spacey has, which is the the spacey large model, which is um, about a billion words from the internet, the particular text corpuses that it's using, what did it infer given that input? What, how did it think things were related? So I, I looked at one of the examples of, you know, human to alien, easy, I expect that. But alien to spider, it, you know, that's an interesting inference that the system has made in the way people on, you know, collectively think about the concept of an alien. Yeah, it didn't go alien goat. It didn't go alien bamboo. It went alien spider. Yeah, or alien wolf as well. So that you know, it, it was picking up the the vibe, if you like, of how human beings perceive that concept, which yeah. is an interesting learned capability. And Ian Sheridan uh, picks up on that. He says, with the wolf and spider's alien example, surely the reasoning why humans think the wolf is alien is pivotal. Is the link attacks, fear of attacks, or other factors? Right. All, the, all the deep associations we have with those those labels <clears throat> is inferred from the data. Yeah, it's like Eric, you can imagine doing that for other, you know, your enterprise business data set, where there may be inferences that are a both reflect you the biases that might exist there, or just show an inference you haven't made before. So. Um, Edwina Morton asked a question, and, and I might tag something along to it because she's got a good point here. If you mine the same data set for a second time, do you ever get different results? Uh, and if not, you know, what conclusions do you draw about data or analysis bias? But I'd also be interested in you just explaining any techniques for uh, comparisons. So how can I mine one one way and I get mm. a pretty picture? But how do I compare that pretty picture with the pretty picture I get? From another one, it's just this is where yeah, this is where the data engineering comes in. So, well, first of all, obviously, if you're using any stochastic random seeds in your Python code to 
do the analysis and these statistical methods that have random SIGs in them that might vary it but then different tools will get so you might want to compare spacey versus BERT as two NLP tools and see I've done that and look at the difference between the clusters you get out of it at least I mean, the, the visualization can then be useful because you, you don't want to <clears throat> trying to reverse engineer something like those NLP, deep NLP tools they're very complex tools by definition but you could use the visualization to look at the differences that it does on a test data set and then decide for yourselves which of those NLP models is giving you, the, you know, a more meaningful output for the particular application that you have. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, um, one of the things I think people are picking up on is the relationship of, or the apparent relationship of these techniques to cluster analysis and statistics. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Alan Puncher says in classical statistical analysis, the standard technique of extracting key factors or dimensions, i.e. reducing the dimensionality from unstructured multi-factor data is principal components analysis, or, or as the psychologists uh, call it, factor analysis. Uh, mm. Are these applied or adapted within these knowledge networks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the standard statistical methods use PCA, SVD, um, TSNE for dimension reduction. So TSNE is a very popular one from um, Jeff Hinton. Where you've got your high-dimensional data set and you want to compress it down to back down to 2D. Yes, and is, is tricky to work with because the parameterization of it is very sensitive and can lead you down a garden path if you're not careful. <coughs> um, mm. What's interesting is this graph method I find easier to actually operate on over complex data and give a meaningful output compared to things like TSNE. If you don't have the sensitivity to parameterization compared to those kind of more advanced algorithmic methods. Which is interesting. Hmm. Um, Andre Hera is asking, and I'll, I'll, I think this is probably a detailed question, but uh, he'd like some paper references. But the, the, the straight question is: Are are the connection determination algorithms public? Mm, some are, some are. Okay. Good. There's um, some magic. There's some magic sauce in what we're doing, obviously, with research. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, there's a whole set of questions here about bias, um, so I'll just pick up two. Uh, Robin, uh, sorry, uh, Hugh Purser is saying, could you expand on how bias occurs and how it can be controlled? And Robin Davis uh, has a sort of a follow-on. Uh, how do you provide a confidence score in any knowledge to graph to compensate for the inherent biases in NLP and AI, so a metric? Uh, in mm. fact, how would, you, how would anyone know uh, that the NLP AI has biases, let alone what those biases are? I'm interested by the idea of how to metricate it. I haven't seen much work on that. I think that's an open area. It's how you would measure the level of bias that might be creeping into this, this kind of application, this kind of process. Um, and that would require a deep knowledge of the particular ways that the, the corpus models have been built, the differences between spacey, but the hugging based models. Um, yeah, so I haven't seen much work on actually detecting and then measuring that level of bias. I mean, people, what people care about is accuracy, just pure accuracy. So has my, you know, corp, you know, NLP tool trained on scientific papers or trained on pharmaceutical data produced a meaningful, you know, protein, protein mapping or something. Um, but the idea of, especially if you're using things like counterterrorism or policing or a social function, then that, this kind of subtle, and it's, it's not a direct, it's not a bias that was in, in, input by, you know, a, a bad researcher using a, gender bias data isn't it's more subtle than that it's a bias that's a function of the way people perceive the world because that's how what your tools are picking up on 
it's how human beings perceive reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, got a couple of questions here. Um, uh, let me pick up on, well, uh, getting really into practicality. Uh, Jeremy Wilson is uh, curious, you know, are, are there any typical characteristics of a real life business challenge in the financial services sector, which might be best addressed by deploying a knowledge graph? Um, I think the Panama Papers is a great example of sort of fraud and tax evasion process. And you can use that data by using these graph tools to actually mine, which is quite a large data set, and infer links that you could then explore for fraud purposes. Um, so you could certainly do the same thing for like insurance fraud, um, of the financial transactions where you've got a large body of data and you want to see the subtle connections that might exist within it. I mean, the, the obvious things you've probably picked up on, but this kind of analysis tool done properly could give you a way of exploring and finding you know, second, third order connections. Hmm. Yeah, Ian Sheridan has a suggestion here. In global investment banks, the number of compliance, legal and risk policies can exceed 10,000. So mm -hmm. I think there's massive potential for this interconnecting of policies, given a human has finite memory yeah. and time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Have you ever yeah. seen an example of that kind of uh, volume reduction approach? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's an ideal area for it, basically, where you've got large corpus of documents in, in a constrained domain. It's not a totally open domain. And then you can push that through this kind of LP to graph building. Uh, Richard Burge uh, would like to pick up on the uh, protein folding problem, he, you know, which is an interesting one. Uh, as he understands that the deep mind process is simply a very fast way of working out how a protein will fold. It has not helped us understand why it's folding the way it does. And if you simply want to get vaccines operating quickly, that's good enough. Uh, to what extent might knowledge graphs help us understand why? Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So it's, it's quite a controversial area. So you know, DeepMind, a great company, made, there was a lot of media attention to the protein falling because a lot of claims were made, or the, I think the media amplified obviously, what was being said. Um, but at the same time, that is an open scientific problem. It's a very hard scientific problem, especially what does it mean? And if you can combine the knowledge graph approach to look at, you know, how the neural network is telling you the thing is folding with a graph neural network. And then you can then start to overlay, like with link it with the research paper, actually link it with the way humans are looking at the problem. Yeah, that would, that would be a very rich area, I think. Hmm. Um, kind of running uh, to the end of time, but uh, just a couple of things that I, uh, I'd like to pick up on. Bob McDowell again uh, says, you know, one of the issues with knowledge graphs is that they are like impressionist paintings, or I might add Rorschach. <laughs> <laughs> capable of extensive personal interpretation and influenced very much by first impressions. Um, but his question to you is, how deep and thorough should data cleansing be to ensure that future graphs do not contain the germs of earlier graphs? Uh, mm -hmm. I might even add uh, more than that, uh, not, just, not just the germs of them, but is there any metric for, for the cleanliness of the data? No, <laughs> not that I'm aware of. That's an inherent problem. If you have an answer to that, please email me. Okay. Um, and it goes back to the problem of nobody wants to pay for it. They, nobody wants to pay for data cleaning. In the same way that people don't really want to pay for street cleaning. It's like it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> no. yeah. Well, Dionysus kicks in. Maybe uh, Bob and I are wrong. It's not Impressionist paintings. It's not uh, Rorschach's test. It's more like Jackson Pollock's. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I, I like that. Pollock. It's a Pollock bit, bit painting. Um, just a, a 
couple more questions. And uh, one is when when we're looking at these, what, what immediately springs to my mind is actually I should be able to identify gaps as well. Oh should, yeah. 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 Any examples of that? Um. Well, I like the bamboo example. So you you expected the thing to learn, understand bamboo is a grass, but no, it, it's going off in a tangent. Um, but then you can say so the point then is you, they need to go back to your original data sets, the corpus you were feeding into it. And say, well, what, where, where was the gap in the corpus that meant it didn't learn the basic connection? So the there's a hole in the corpus somewhere. So it certainly would then take you back to the original corpus and say, I need to find a different corpus, plug that into the model and try again. So it's, it's a good way of deducing the, the weaknesses in the corpus you're feeding into it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was just sort of looking here, you know, some of your answers to the questions, like there, there's not a lot of metrics about data cleansing or there's not a lot of metrics about bias and graphs and sort of putting knowledge graph research literature into a knowledge graph. I would hope that I'd see <laughs> blank holes there that would justify me maybe dedicating more research into that space. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, um, well, Chris David uh, does point out sometimes you do want dirty data. Dirt often hides lots of interesting things. So thank you, thank you for that comment, Chris. Uh, and just a final question, if if we could, in the time available, Robert. Um, a lot of this, uh, you know, really in many ways is about the visualization of NLP. Um, mm. So when it comes to the skills there, I mean, uh, surely a lot of those skills are language skills, deep language skills, not just not just linguistics, but also the context of the language, dialect, uh, a number of other areas. So any, any comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can certainly get multilingual corpus sets now um, and different translation processes to move between them. Um, but as, you, as you're saying, so certainly in, if you're doing text knowledge graph construction, then an awareness of how language is constructed, which is something I struggle with personally, is, you know, is a challenge. Um, it, and, and again, I don't think there have been many tools looking at the fine-grained process of how you do that NLP to graph construction. It's a it's a very high-level process that takes place with a lot of assumptions about you know, nouns, pronouns, how they interact, the, the the connections between them in text, which are quite very dated. There's a lot of docu you know, there's a lot of documentation from 1970 on the topic, yeah, or 1980. But there's not a lot of new analysis of, of the richness of language and how it should be mapped in or could be mapped into these kind of new data structures. Um, again, another research area. Mm. Well, Robert, um, it's been fantastic. And whilst, uh, whilst it may be a difficult for natural language, you've done extremely well at, at conveying uh, a complex field to a lot of us today. And I think the, the, the sheer quantity of questions demonstrates the interest in the subject. Um, I'd love to. I love it when the audience gives me something I can close on, but I, I, unfortunately, I'm too honest. It's uh, Dionysus uh, again who points out uh, that John Searle once remarked, "The syntax is not sufficient for the semantics," uh, which I think is a way to close on, on those points. But if you'll give me just a minute, I've got three quick rounds of thanks to do. Uh, first round of thanks, as ever, to our sponsors. I hope that you found this interesting. I know that many of you are users of knowledge graphs, uh, and if you're not, you're planning to. In, in most cases. And I also know that many of you provide systems that deploy them. So I hope that you found this overview of use. Uh, second thing, of course, is to thank the audience. You've been vibrant today, and many of you have allowed me to look more intelligent than I, uh, than I pretend to be. Uh, so thank you uh, very much for your, your comments and questions. 
uh, we have, as ever, a, a full program, and I would encourage you really uh, just to go and look on the website. But uh, I will point out that tomorrow morning is a very early one, and it's a dial-in uh, from Australia looking at building resilience in Australia and a deep discussion uh, with our guests on how it has transpired that Australia seems to have done uh, so well vis-a-vis uh, -vis the pandemic. But lots of hot topics are coming up. But my final round of thanks, as ever, of course, uh, must go to you, Robert. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, great to have you back on the program. I do hope we, we will pick you up, I'm, I'm sure, on the vector word analysis uh, at some point. Uh, unfortunately, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause, but I do have, as ever, my free uh, and karmic clapper. Very great. And we hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care.